Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is sponsored once again by BetterHelp. Perhaps many of us out there are still finding certain things difficult in life. Might not necessarily just be the fallout from the pandemic or us being affected by the events that we've seen across the world in the past two years. All sorts of things come to try us, don't they? And anything can weigh heavily on you. So, and this isn't self-help that's being advocated here, I must stress that. If something's preventing you from achieving your wants or goals, or is stopping you from being happy, then perhaps it's something that better help can help you with. With a broad range of expertise available, specialists in all manner of issues, and some which may not be locally available to you, what BetterHelp does is assesses any issues you may be facing and then matches you up with your own best-suited licensed professional therapist for professional counselling, with your needs firmly in mind. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating with your counsellor in a confidential online environment, someone you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, who you can message anytime you want or feel that you need to, and from whom you can expect timely and thoughtful responses from. It's a much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling and is available worldwide, so clients anywhere can use it if they wish. If it's even needed, BetterHelp has financial aid available for its use. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash TCE. Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your friendly neighbourhood one man and his living, breathing, hairy football, North Wales spare room based true crime podcast, where each time around I try to bring you tales of true crime that might not be the ones floating around the public conscious, the unfamiliar and often obscure ones from the darkest nooks and crannies of the UK and Ireland. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's amazing as it always is having you guys joining me 
which I thank you so kindly for doing so, and I hope that as you do today, then you and yours are all good, you're all safe, and you're all well. So, illness has thrown the start of Series 7 into a right load of old bollocks up of turmoil, really. And some things have been chopped and changed around, but I'm back on the men now, and I'm back here with another spanker of a tale. Even if it isn't the one that I plan bringing right now, but one which we shall get to very shortly. Thanks first go out to all those who've wished me a speedy recovery during my recent illness, you're all absolutely ace you lot are as well as massive thanks to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time around for Nanu Walston-Holm, Liam Salisbury, Lisa Johnson, Darren Russell, Lucy Walton, Magpie, Colleen harrigan Holder, Katie Kirby, Deirdre Allen and S. Rushton, plus Liz Oliver, Eleanor Graham, Olivia Q and Catherine Carey, who have opted to annually support the show. What can I say all? Thank you so much. It's so very kind of you to do so. Now you too, and that's you folks, not that bellend with the glasses and his three mates. You can also support the show like this kind lot I've just mentioned and get yourself access to some 30 unreleased bonus tales. Tales like The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell, Operation Magnesium, or the latest one, and it's a two-part one that's out very soon, entitled the Lost Girls of Liverpool, should you wish to, of course, all very simply and cheap at half the price. You just seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site, or you can always use the ever-present link in the episode show notes that cuts out all of that bollocks of looking around for you, because I'm very, very nice like that. I'd also like to remind you that tickets for CrimeCon 2022 are now available, which promises a whole host of great speakers, guest presentations. Honestly, if it's half as good as last year's was, then it'll be amazing. We had a right time there. You can catch myself there this time around as well on Podcast Row for the weekend, alongside some truly great shows, and I look forward so much to saying hi to some of you guys at the event again shooting the breeze, maybe even hitting the bar, or competing in the quiz, which last year was the longest quiz of all time, it really was. And fabulously, the organisers have once again kindly offered that if you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST at checkout when you come to get your tickets, then not only will you get yourself a nice 10% off the cost of them, but if you let me know that you have, I'll make a note and I shall make sure there is an enthusiast swag bag waiting for you at the event filled with all sorts, as well as the opportunity to be a part of the enthusiasts quiz team at the event, and we're going to smash it this year, guys, we really are. Now, if you're caught up with a regular enthusiast in sequence, then you'll have heard this, or if you listen in a ski-whiff kind of order like some people do, then you may not have, but last series on the regular show, one of the more horrific tales that I covered was in an episode called Fury and Fire, the disturbing case of Richard Fielding, who torched a house in London in a misplaced act of revenge against the son of the occupants, a slight that purely was the product of his own mental illness, and that led to catastrophic consequences, absolutely horrific. I also opened the last series with a tale called The Burning, which dealt with, if not as prolific in the victim count, then certainly equally as horrific 
to use fire something so destructive for whatever reason to destroy or maim or kill then there isn't place on earth for someone prepared to do so there really isn't i'm not particularly a believer in the old heaven and hell concept myself but if it was a thing then said individuals who do that are always getting into the downlift aren't they the former episode mentioned there was a tale that i came across as i was researching the latter and i was dismayed i believe i mentioned it in the episode at the time at just how many similar cases that there was whilst researching cases that i made a note of stories that stuck with me so much that i felt immediately they'd come to the enthusiast at some point and a pair of them have here the episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events including details of injury and involving children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all with that in mind please join the true crime enthusiast for an episode that i've entitled hellfire For our opening tale of the episode, we're off down to the city of Southampton in the UK county of Hampshire. A few stats for those unfamiliar with Southampton. It's the largest city in Hampshire and the only UK one to have its own geothermal power station. Bet you'll sleep tonight knowing that. It's where the Titanic sailed out of on its maiden voyage. And we all know how tits up that went, don't we? It's where the Spitfire was created. Bird's eye fish fingers were founded there. The city's Wellington Arms pub is the official British consulate for the Kingdom of Redonda. I thought that was like the, the place in Marvel, but that was Wakanda, isn't it? And notable residents to hail from there include comedian Benny Hill, musicians Craig David, and Coldplay drummer Will Campion, naturalist Chris Packham, and Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak. The district of Sholing, on the east side of the city, was up until 1996 the home of the Good family, builder Melvin Good and his wife Beverly, and the couple's five children, 14-year-old Kelly, 12-year-old Terry, 10-year-old Alison, 8-year-old Nicola, and 6-year-old Patrick, who lived in a large end-of-terrace house at number 94 Sullivan Road there. Literally living up to their name, the family had a proper good life. They were well liked and popular with their neighbours. Nobody had a bad word to say about them. They were your archetypal good neighbours. Which made the horrific events of the early hours of Sunday the 5th of May 1996 all that more incomprehensible. It's approaching 1.45am that Sunday morning on the Sullivan Road area a looping horseshoe-shaped estate is quiet. No one outside notices the dark-clad figure carrying a bulky and cumbersome object cycle along to a footpath just near to number 94, dismount and stalk up to the front door. He notices a car outside, the lights are still on upstairs and the glow of at least two televisions can be seen through the drawn curtains of the house. Unfazed by this, Unscrewing the top of the canister he's brought with him, taking care not to spill any of the contents on himself, the figure then opens the letterbox and pours a large quantity of the petrol that the canister contains through 
soaking the hall and the stairs carpet with it. He then strikes a match and drops it through and, not waiting around to see the destruction he's come there for, then runs back to the cycle he's left nearby and pedals furiously away, soon out of sight. The result of his actions were all too immediately apparent, however, and they'd been witnessed by an occupant of the house. Most of the good family in the house were sleeping at the time, but 14-year-old Kelly and her mother Beverly were still awake and had been watching late-night television. Hearing the letterbox go and going to investigate, both Beverly and Kelly could see the shape of someone standing outside the front door and then saw the chilling sight of petrol being poured through the letterbox. A noise like water being poured was how Kelly later described it and was standing on the landing when the hall became engulfed in a fireball, a ball of flame shooting up the stairs as the figure set it alight. Imagine how terrifying that must be to see. That's the real stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Within moments, the house was an inferno, with the stairs ablaze and the fire having rapidly spread to the landing. The only way out was through the upstairs windows. Beverly, Melvin and Kelly were immediately out and onto the adjacent conservatory roof, landing in the back garden, before immediately attempting to re-enter the property because the couple's other four children were still inside. All four could be heard screaming for their parents to save them over the noise of the inferno. As Beverly screamed, Melvin tried in vain to re-enter the property, having to be held back by neighbours who knew that to let him enter would be a suicide mission, and both could only watch helplessly as firefighters arrived and began tackling the blaze. So fierce were the flames, however, and the crew attending were later to report it as the most intense house fire they'd ever faced, that firefighters themselves were driven back by them. And when they did manage to eventually enter the house through an upstairs window, they subsequently made a horrific discovery. Huddled together in the back bedroom were the bodies of the four good children, 12-year-old Terry, 10-year-old Allison, eight-year-old Nicola and six-year-old Patrick, each of whom had been overcome by smoke and fumes and had perished in the blaze. Now there just cannot be words to describe how finding such a scene must be, and unsurprisingly, several of the emergency service personnel attending that evening were later offered counselling, along with neighbours who had attempted to assist in rescuing the children. One neighbour, John Clifford, recalled later, I heard terrible, terrible screams which woke me from my sleep. They were wailing, Mummy, Daddy, help us, please. The house was completely ablaze, but even above the noise of the fire, I could hear those children's screams. The sounds of those helpless little kids screaming for their lives will stay with me forever. As I'm in no doubt, that something like that would. As the blaze was brought under control, a shell-shocked Beverly and Melvin were taken to hospital for minor injuries, but Kelly, who'd been caught in the fire, was rushed to Salisbury's Oddstock Hospital for specialist treatment to the burns she'd received on her hands, arms and legs. 
as a murder investigation began, for the fire was treated immediately as suspicious. The officer leading the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Peter Nayrud, told the press, This is an appalling incident which cut short the lives of four people. A fifth youngster is severely injured, and the remainder of the family is traumatised. Any fire in which four children die in such horrendous circumstances, we are bound to treat as suspicious until we can say with certainty what the cause is. Now this is a somewhat diplomatic answer really, for it was confirmed immediately that the fire had been started deliberately by the recollections of both Beverly and Kelly. Although Beverly told police, still in a state of shock, I quote, The children did not appear and I knew they weren't coming out. I haven't got any enemies. I do not know who would want to hurt me and I know my children have never hurt anyone. Kelly, meanwhile, had said as she was loaded into the ambulance, I knew who did this. I saw him ride off on a bike. I know him. And she did indeed know him, for the arsonist was someone well known to all of the good family. Up until about a month before the fire, the good family had had someone staying with them for the previous year, Beverly's younger sister, 36-year-old Jeanette Hayworth, who'd been offered their home as a bolt hole, a refuge from the unhappy marriage that she'd just left. Jeanette's husband, Fred, a courier driver some 22 years older than his wife, had for a long time been both physically and mentally abusive towards Jeanette, and in early 1995, after one beating too many, Jeanette had finally left him. The couple had married back in 1978 and went on to have two sons, but from early on, the marriage had descended into misery. Fred was described as controlling and, which was put down to him being given up for adoption at age three, having a complete distrust of and disrespect for all women. He was a heavy drinker, though reportedly not alcohol dependent, and would think nothing of lashing out with fist or feet at the merest slight. It was his way or no way. You know the type of person, I'm sure. Children arriving over the years didn't fix this miserable existence, and it continued on until 1995, by which time Jeanette had finally had enough. With encouragement from her sister and her family, she left Fred, though leaving the couple's sons with him, and found sanctuary at the Good Family Home on Sullivan Road. Although it was just a mile and a half from her home of the past 17 years, Aynham Avenue in the district of Bittern, it felt like a world away. Taking a bit of time to collect herself, in mid-1995, Jeanette filed for divorce proceedings and began to carve out a new life for herself, away from Fred. She got herself a job working behind the bar in the area's Masonic Lodge, of which Fred was a member, however, and by April 1996, she had enough money to rent herself a private flat, all the while helped and supported by her sister, her brother-in-law, and her nieces and nephews. Now Fred, as you can imagine, seethed at this. He despised the good family, blaming them for Jeanette not returning to him, and to anyone who would listen to him, he described them as scum. He caused a series of scenes 
turning up at their house often to remonstrate with them and following them around. He even paid a private detective to carry out surveillance on the family for a short time. And all this while was determined that they should pay for keeping Jeanette from coming back to him. For this prick seriously was blind to the fact that it was his doing and his doing alone that had broken up the marriage and he'd convinced himself that it was Beverly's fault. It absolutely consumed him this. And just days before the fatal fire, he told Jeanette, No matter how long it takes, I'll get you and your sister. Had Hayworth gained his misguided revenge in the most unbelievable, horrific of ways. That Sunday evening, just hours after the fire that had claimed the lives of the four good children, Frederick Hayworth was arrested as he prepared to take his son out to do a newspaper round. Once in custody, he claimed at first to know nothing of the fire and claimed he could only remember going home to bed. The previous evening, he'd attended the Masonic Ladies' Night function where his estranged wife was working behind the bar. He'd drunk heavily throughout the evening and Hayworth remembered both drunkenly offering a sentimental love song as a toast to the lady's presence, as well as having a few words with Jeanette, in which he'd accused her of having an affair. He remembered going home, and that was it, he claimed. Until he realised that police didn't believe his bullshit story, and then he admitted that he had started the fire, though he claimed his memory of it was hazy, saying, I quote, I must have had petrol, because I remember putting it through the door. However, Hayworth offered no words of remorse or sorrow for the four children who had died, his four nieces and nephews, instead merely oozed self-pity about the collapse of his marriage. With his custody period extended, on the Tuesday after his arrest, Hayworth was found collapsed in his cell at the police station where he's been held for questioning and was rushed to Southampton General Hospital, where he was treated for head injuries under police guard. After spending some three days in for observation, he was released from hospital on Friday the 10th of May, and on the following morning, 58-year-old Frederick Hayworth was charged with the murders of the four good children. When he appeared at Southampton Magistrates Court to answer the charges on Monday the 13th of May, Hayworth spoke only to give his name, address and date of birth before being remanded in custody to await trial. A month after the blaze that had claimed their lives, on the 8th of June 1996, the funeral of the four good children was held at Southampton Crematorium before three days later, a packed memorial service was held at the Church of St Francis of Assisi in Scholing. Attended by scores of the children's school friends, several of them brought the floral tributes of sunflowers, as was requested by Beverly, Melvin and Kelly. Sunflowers had been the good children's favourite flowers, and they'd each been grown one in the garden at the time of the fire. Heartbreaking, eh? Frederick Hayworth came to trial at Winchester Crown Court a year later in May 1997, where he issued a plea of not guilty to the murders of the four good children. 
The court was told that Hayworth had been depressed and angry after his wife Jeanette, 22 years his junior, had left him and moved in with her sister Beverly Good and Beverly's husband Melvin. The court heard that Hayworth had become obsessed after Jeanette's departure and convinced himself that his sister-in-law was partly responsible for his wife's alienation and bitterly resented that she'd provided a temporary home for Jeanette when she'd left him. Nigel Pascoe QC, for the prosecution, said Hayworth's feelings had, I quote, boiled over. Giving evidence to the court, Mrs Hayworth told the court of the reasons that led to the collapse of the marriage, as well as Hayworth's behaviour towards her and his sister after the breakup. Specifically, she also recounted how her estranged husband had told her, only days before the fatal fire, that no matter how long it took, he would get her and his sister, because no one could mess up his life and get away with it. Describing the night of the fire in May of the previous year, Mr Pascoe said Hayworth had that evening attended the Masonic Lodge ladies' night, where his estranged wife was working behind the bar. He'd drunk heavily and they'd had words, and later, when a card went around for the guests to sign, he wrote, Fred Hayworth, single. Brooding on this, this had fueled his next horrendous actions. When he'd gotten home in the early hours, the prosecution alleged that Hayworth had then changed into dark clothing and rode his son's mountain bike as he cycled to his sister-in-law's home in Sullivan Road, a journey of a mile and a half, carrying a can of petrol, which he then poured through the letterbox and set ablaze. When Hayworth himself came into the witness box, he admitted starting the fire. He couldn't really deny what was in his police statements that had been presented to the court already, but told the court he thought the Good family had gone away for the weekend to Cornwall and that he thought he was merely setting fire to an empty house. I never ever intended to hurt any children, any adults. It's not in my nature, he claimed to the court. Mr Pascoe shot his claims down here and said that he must have known that the house was occupied with clues such as the lights were on upstairs, Mrs Good's car was outside the home and perhaps one or two televisions were on at the time of the attack. He furthered that it had been a dreadful deed with the most terrible consequences, saying, I quote, There are no sufficient words, are there, to express the agony of the parents and the relatives or indeed the surviving children. This was a premeditated and monstrous crime committed by a man deeply obsessed and deeply angry after the breakup of his marriage, his anger being directed not only to his former wife, but her sister, the mother of the four children who died. Melvin and Beverly Good had had to leave the courtroom during the trial, the detail of their children's deaths being presented just too painful for them to relive. On Friday, May the 16th, 1997, the then 59-year-old Frederick Hayworth visibly shook and slumped in the dock as the jury of eight men and three women at Winchester Crown Court found him guilty of deliberately pouring petrol through the letterbox of the Good family home and setting fire to it, all because his estranged wife had found refuge there. 
delivering guilty verdicts in the murders of all four good children and the attempted murders of Melvin, Beverly and Kelly Good, a verdict that made members of the Good family sitting in the public gallery above gasp. Presiding Mrs Justice Elizabeth Steele, addressing Hayworth, said there was no evidence to indicate that he was a wicked man, but on the night of the fire the previous year, he had committed the greatest possible wickedness that there was. It was scant comfort, she said, but the only comfort there was for the good family is that the post-mortem examinations had showed that the children had been killed by fumes rather than flames. She then ran through the sequence of his crimes, pointing out how he had that night dressed in dark clothing, took his son's bike and collected a can of petrol, before cycling to Sullivan Road, pouring the petrol through the letterbox and lighting the fire. Shooting down his claims once again that he thought he was igniting an empty house, she reiterated the fact that outside was a car, there were upstairs lights on, and one or two televisions were visible through the curtains. At that time, it must have been plainly obvious that the house was occupied, said the judge. And still, he had lit the fire before cycling away. What evil brainstorm prompted you to act as you did, we shall never know. The next day you pretended you knew nothing at all about the fire. Thereafter, you've closed your mind to the enormity of what you did. This is a tragedy that will remain with you and with others for a very long time. The consequences will live with you forever. Mrs Justice Steele then passed Hayworth four life sentences, with ten-year sentences to serve concurrently for each of the attempted murders. Following the hearing, Detective Superintendent Peter Nehrud said Hayworth was a selfish, violent man who had been unable to admit it was his own violence to his wife that had caused his marriage to break up, saying, Instead, he blamed the good family, and in seeking his revenge, he destroyed his own family and killed four young children in a senseless, awful act of hatred. The family will never get over this tragedy. Of course they bloody wouldn't. How would you even begin to try to? In a press statement, the Good family members said, We are pleased that justice has been done today. However, no punishment will ever be sufficient for the crime that has been committed. No sentence imposed would ever compensate or end the loss and suffering felt by us all. They then thanked all of those who had supported them and said that they wanted to be left in privacy to start their lives again. Although that, they added, now seemed impossible without Terry, who was known affectionately as Rue, Alison, who was nicknamed Tootsie, and Nicola and Patrick. The statement ended with them saying, we love our children and will miss them every day for the rest of our lives. Two families destroyed by the actions of one evil individual. For as the officer leading the inquiry said, both the Good and Hayworth families were destroyed by the actions. Hayworth's sons cut him off completely following his arrest and admissions. They even changed their names by deed poll to distance themselves from him and their very last interaction with him being attending court to ensure that he was sent to prison for life. Outside the court on the day of the verdict, 
Hayworth's son, Robert Neal, told the media, At the end of the day, he deserved what he got. He's never really been a nice man. I think he's an evil man. I think he always was and always will be. I'm sorry to say that. Obviously, he's still my father, but he's definitely an evil man. You can't really fault that statement, can you? For our second tale of the episode, we head up to the county of Derbyshire, where we've been several times before on the show, and to the village of Langley Mill in its Amber Valley district. Teenage couple Amy Smith, 17, and her 18-year-old boyfriend Sean Gaunt had in December 2014 welcomed their baby daughter Ruby Grace into the world, a baby that although was unplanned, was cherished and loved wholeheartedly by both of them from the moment she was born. It had been a difficult start for Ruby, however, as doctors had diagnosed her from early on as having a defect with her heart that would require her having open-heart surgery. But both the families of Amy and Sean had rallied around to give the young couple the support that they undoubtedly needed, and had helped them move at the start of 2015 into a second-floor flat at number 59 North Street in Langley Mill. A popular, well-kept and communal area, neighbours there soon got used to seeing the glowing young mum and proud dad often taking baby Ruby Grace out in the pram, the devotion each had for her clearly visible in their faces and their demeanour. So, imagine the terror then, imagine the horror on neighbours' minds and faces when early in the morning of Sunday the 20th of June 2015, just after 4am, they were awoken by the sounds of screams and commotion, and looked out to see the three-storey property fiercely ablaze, which had either spread from, or to, a car that was parked outside. As you can imagine, neighbours were immediately out to the terrifying scene, willing to assist the occupants in whichever way they could, for each of the first and second floor flats were occupied and the fire was spread into the adjacent property. Resident Suzanne Langton, the first to raise the alarm, described later, I heard screaming and banging and ran outside to see a car on fire close to the front door and black smoke and flames pouring from the building. It was awful. A lot of the place is wooden cladding and the fire just ripped through it. Usually a moped is stored in the hall there, and that may have fuelled the blaze. As residents of the adjoining property managed to get out to safety, one of them even throwing a mattress out of the window and getting his children to jump onto it, Suzanne's husband, Quinton Langton, recalled how he spotted the terrifying sight of two lads screaming for help through one of the upstairs open windows, saying, They thought they were going to die. They were screaming, We can't breathe, it's too hot. They were clinging onto a satellite dish and threatening to jump. We had ladders, but they weren't long enough. It was horrendous. They were pleading for help, saying, We're going to jump or we'll die. Someone appeared with a long extended ladder round the back, and by a miracle, we managed to get those lads to safety. One kept saying, My girlfriend, get her. 
The two teenagers I've just mentioned who had gotten out were Sean Gaunt and his friend Gavin Brooks, who'd been staying the night at Sean's flat, along with another friend of theirs, 17-year-old Ed Green, whose car it was on fire outside. And of course, with Amy and baby Ruby Grace. Sean had initially had hold of Ruby as he began to scale down the ladder, but tragically, his footing was so unsteady that he was fearful of dropping her and had handed her back to her mother, Amy. He had to be restrained from making his way back inside, pleading with rescuers to help his girlfriend and baby, and then, looking up, rescuers saw another figure begin to descend the ladder, but then head back inside in an attempt to rescue the mother and daughter, 17-year-old Ed Green. Police and firefighters were on the scene within four minutes, and after fighting the car fire, desperately made their way inside through the PVC entrance door, being met with acrid black smoke. As they brought the blaze under control, it was then that they made a tragic discovery. The smoke inside was debilitating, and indeed, was that thick that firefighters initially did not notice a body lying at the foot of the stairs, that of Ed Green, who had made his way back inside from the ladder in an attempt to get Amy and Ruby Grace out to safety. Any fatality in such a situation must be horror enough to discover, it really must, but there was worse to come. Lying on the badly damaged landing, having succumbed to smoke inhalation, Firefighters discovered the body of Amy Smith. Huddled in her hands in a blanket was baby Ruby Grace, who Amy had desperately tried, tragically unsuccessfully, to shield from the inferno and the fumes. Relatives said later that Amy would have been too scared to jump from the window of the flat in case her daughter was seriously hurt as she did so. How tragic is that? Just take that in for a moment. Horror beyond belief, that must have been. I, I don't even want to imagine it. A total of six people had managed to escape the fire, three being rescued by neighbours from the same second and third floor building where Amy, Ed and Ruby Grace had perished, whilst the other three were from the adjoining property. Several neighbouring properties were also evacuated due to a gas leak that was caused by the blaze. As those rescued were rushed to hospital to be treated for the effects of smoke inhalation, the heartbroken and shell-shocked families of Amy, Sean and Ed rushed around to the scene. One rescuer, Paul Barber, hearing of the three deaths, said at the time, The baby's father survived and is in hospital now. I've been told he was climbing down the ladder with a baby but slipped and nearly dropped her, so passed her back to the mother. But after he'd done so, she collapsed. His mum arrived at the scene early this morning. It's such a shame because she had to tell him the news that her granddaughter had died. It's just horrendous. They were a nice little family, a cute family. Sean indeed had to be told by his mother, Carlene Gaunt, that Amy and baby Ruby Grace had not made it out of the blaze alive. Again, how must it be to have to try and take something like that in? 
The horrified community immediately rallied around, and tributes to the three who had perished came thick and fast. Floral tributes were laid at the scene by both Amy and Sean's families, while several of their friends gave online tributes, such as testimony by Katie Goff, who said, Knowing the baby was only six months old is so heartbreaking, and 17 years of age is too young to die. Jodie Mee, meanwhile, wrote, Rest in peace, girls and Ed. Heaven has gained two beautiful girls and a strong boy. Thoughts go out to their family and all the people who knew them. And the heroism of Ed was also praised, with a friend of his saying on Twitter, I feel so proud to have known someone who's been so brave and selfless. R.I.P. Ed Green, you won't be forgotten. Some days after the fire, Edward's parents, Wayne and Amanda Green, issued the following statement. Our son was a wonderful young man whose life has been devastatingly cut short in circumstances we still cannot comprehend. Edward was an incredible son and brother who had a huge zest for life and welcomed every challenge with determination and enthusiasm. He was a warm, compassionate boy whose infectious personality has left an impression on all of those who were fortunate enough to meet him. Edward was a ball of sunshine whose smile shone each and every day, and he will be missed by so many people. They then paid tribute to the overwhelming support received in the wake of the tragedy from the community, particularly the sports organisations and the scout movement which Ed had belonged to, saying, The support provided by school teachers and pupils is of great comfort to us and Edward's brothers and sister. It is with their help and guidance that all three will continue to make their brother proud. Our thoughts are with those who loved Amy and Ruby Grace, who were so tragically taken alongside our beloved son. We will never understand why our children have been taken from us. Our thanks go out to those people who've done everything in their power to help, including those who were at the scene last Sunday, and those who continue with their investigations to bring justice for all of those affected by this horrific event. The love of our family and friends has enabled us to cope with the events of last week, and their continued support and care will ensure that we may be able to rebuild a future without Edward. Now focus on that phrase, bring justice, for this had been no tragic accident. It wouldn't be really making up part of a bloody episode of the show if it was, would it? As soon as the fire was under control that Sunday morning, as tributes were being laid, Derbyshire's assistant chief fire officer, Gavin Tomlinson, told the press, We are keeping a totally open mind as to how the fire started. No cause has been ruled out. It will be a very slow process. We will investigate every possible cause. It's too early to say if the fire was started deliberately. Now firefighters are usually able to determine pretty much immediately the cause of any blaze however and an overpowering smell of petrol around the car blaze and the front door of the property where it was determined that the fire had originated from was enough to convince them that this was a case of arson and triple murder. But why? Who bears such hatred for anyone that they deliberately, callously set fire to a building that has just one exit at that exit, a three-storey townhouse filled with people, families, children, 
and a six-month-old baby, all of whom were at risk, and three of whom were killed as a result. What on earth could provoke such horrific actions, I ask you? How about a row over a 50-quid moped? Oh yes. Two days after the fatal fire, and following information that Sean was able to offer police, late in the evening of the 22nd of June 2015, a 17-year-old from New Tithe Street in the Derbyshire town of Long Eaton was arrested by police on suspicion of arson and murder, the exact same time as a 21-year-old man, a 24-year-old man, and a 43-year-old man were arrested for the same offences at a property in Central Avenue in the nearby town of San Diego. Following some three days of questioning, whilst the 17-year-old was released on bail, the other three, 43-year-old Peter Allen Jeffrey Ayer and his sons Simon Lee Ayer, 24, and Anthony Paul Ayer, 21, were charged with three counts of murder. On the 26th of June 2015, in a three-minute hearing before Chesterfield Magistrates, the three men spoke only to confirm their names, ages and addresses, before being remanded in custody, next scheduled to appear at Nottingham Crown Court on the 10th of July. At this hearing, they were remanded in custody once again awaiting a committal hearing in October, where on the 19th of that month, all denied three counts of murder. When the trial of the Ayer family began on Tuesday the 12th of January 2016 at Nottingham Crown Court, the court was told that the fatal fire the previous June was started deliberately as an act of revenge following a row over a stolen moped. The blaze, the prosecution said, was planned and set by Peter Ayer and his sons Simon and Anthony Ayer, and although all three denied three counts of murder, Anthony Ayer had admitted ahead of his trial three counts of manslaughter in relation to the blaze, having conceded that he set fire to a car parked outside the flat, but without any intention to kill or cause serious harm. Prosecution barrister James House QC told Nottingham Crown Court that the catalyst for the attack was an argument over the alleged theft of a moped that belonged to Amy's boyfriend, Sean Gaunt who was in the flat at the time of the fire and which led to the three deaths in the early hours of Sunday, June the 20th, 2015. It was the theft of that moped that was to be the catalyst for the tragic events that followed. Rumours abounded as to whom was responsible for stealing it, Mr House told the court. The court then heard that prior to the fire, Mr Gaunt and a group of friends visited another of Peter Ayer's sons, Aaron Henshaw, after a friend told him that he had stolen his Piaggio Zip moped, which had gone missing in March or April of that year. The jury was told that Mr Gaunt had drunk between 15 and 17 bottles of the tequila-flavoured beer Desperados that day, and Sean and his friends had continued to drive around in Ed Green's Peugeot 106 car before going back to the defendant's house just before 1.30am because a friend was adamant that Mr Gaunt's moped was there. Giving evidence to the court, Sean Gaunt told that after his friend Gavin Brooks had demanded to know where the moped was, 
Peter Ayer had come outside with a large lump hammer and said, I'll show you. Sean then claimed he heard Peter Ayer on the phone to another of his friends during the row outside the defendant's home in San Diego when he said, I quote, You need to sort this out before I fucking body bag the lot of you. I believe it was a threat aimed at everyone, Mr Gaunt said. During the skirmish, Peter Ayer was alleged to have threatened Sean with this lump hammer, telling him to get off his garden, to which Sean admitted he had responded by smashing a bottle of desperados he was carrying against a lamppost for protection, I quote. At some point during this altercation, damage was then caused to the windscreen of a van belonging to Peter Ayer, and the Ayer sons chased off Sean and his friends with sticks. Sean then told the court as the group were driving off, he saw someone get into a black Skoda parked outside the San Diego house and begin to follow them. The teenager said the car was driving just a few feet behind them, with the Peugeot itself travelling about 80 miles per hour at the same time. Prosecutor Mr House added that Peter Ear was then heard to say, Come on, we're going out, which the prosecutor claimed was to be a trip to wrecky Sean's flat. Alleging the Ayer family had indeed then drove to Langley Mill, Mr House said, I quote, They were in a black Skoda Fabia owned by Peter Ayer. Having made that reconnaissance trip, they returned to their address and the home of Simon, obtaining what they needed for the plan before going back to the Gaunt's flat. They'd parked in an adjacent street and two of them got out, walked around the corner and the fire was set. He then spoke of the horrific blaze, saying, In the early hours of the morning of June 21st, the fire was deliberately started outside the flat. It was set using petrol which had been poured in the area immediately outside the front door, and possibly to the front of a car that was parked by the house. The front door was the only means of entry and exit from the flat, which was on the second and third floors of the property. Inside was Sean Gaunt, his partner Amy Smith and their daughter. Also staying were Edward Green and another friend, Gavin Brooks. Smoke entered the property and set off the smoke alarm. The occupants attempted to escape by the front door, but were unable to do so. The door's seal then failed and smoke poured in. In panic, they turned and ran back up the stairs. Although Mr Gaunt and another teenager survivor escaped with the help of neighbours using ladders, Miss Smith and her daughter succumbed to smoke on a landing, while Mr Green was found dead near the front door. It is not absolutely clear if Amy made it back to the sanctuary of the living room, or if for whatever reason she made her way back to the landing, where she and Ruby Grace died of smoke inhalation. Mr House alleged that following such horrific actions, they returned to the Skoda and drove away, without calling the emergency services. It was done as an act of revenge for the incident outside the home of Peter and Anthony Eyre some hours earlier. It is the prosecution case that these three set out to target Sean Gaunt and gave no consideration to the other occupants of the flat. Their intention was to kill Sean or at least bring severe harm in retribution for the events that happened earlier that evening. Each played their role in the planning and the setting of the fire, 
and consequently, it does not matter who flicked the lighter to ignite the petrol. We say they are equally guilty. The jury was told that the petrol used to start the fire had been siphoned from the motorcycle of Simon Ayer, who had been recorded while in custody as saying to his girlfriend Sophie Smith concerning his motorbike. As far as I know, petrol is all the same. I can't see how they match my... followed by something else that was inaudible. Miss Smith had also told police that Simon Ayer had looked scared when he learned of the three deaths and admitted that he wished he'd never gone out that night with his dad. Giving evidence, Peter Ayer admitted he was driving around near the house on the night of the fire with his two sons. The vehicle had clearly been caught on CCTV doing so, so he couldn't deny it, but denied that he was part of any plan to kill anyone or start any fire. He told Nottingham Crown Court how he'd driven his black Skoda to a street near to the scene of the fire that night, but said that he never got out of the car and had simply dropped off his sons to smash up the car of some men who had earlier that night repeatedly been to the door of his home in Sandyacre demanding to know the location of a stolen moped. Ayers said that one of the men, Gavin Brooks, was, I quote, certainly very threatening and in what his own barrister Sean Smith QC described to the court as a foolish revenge attack gone terribly wrong had driven to Langley Mill and had stayed in the car while his sons got out to go and smash up the car outside the flat in North Street. He denied the suggestion that it was at his instigation that his sons had accompanied him out that evening and while he admitted the comment about body bags, he insisted that such a comment was made after Sean and his friends had left. But it's all very telling, isn't it? Following a month-long trial on Thursday the 11th of February 2016, after three days of deliberations, the jury returned unanimous verdicts of guilty on all charges against Peter Ayer and his sons Anthony and Simon. The courtroom was packed with family and friends of the victims to hear the verdict, with many wearing specially made t-shirts or ties in memory of Amy and baby Ruby Grace that bore the message together forever. Presiding Mrs Justice Carr paid tribute to them all, commending how they'd sat through the trial with great dignity and patience, specifically referring to Amy's mother and Ruby Grace's grandmother Melanie Hawkins who had given evidence. The judge said she had, I quote, spoken eloquently of her world collapsing as a result of their deaths. Her life will never be the same again. The courage in speaking from the witness box will not be forgotten by anyone who witnessed it. The judge also referred to the parents of Ed Green, saying that they, I quote, spoke movingly of the enormity of their loss and the devastating effect that Edward's death has had on them, his grandparents and three younger siblings. Edward was a fine young man, a talented musician and a physically strong sportsman who was working hard as a farmhand at the time. He was a role model to his brothers and sister, who miss him desperately. Ahead of the Ayer family sentencing, Peter Joyce QC, representing Simon Ayer, asked the judge to take account of the father's powerful influence over the sons. He said, So far as these two boys are concerned, 
on the jury's verdict, they've done as they were told. Still the same bloody outcome for their actions, though. Sentencing each of the three to three terms of life imprisonment to run concurrently, presiding Mrs Justice Sue Carr told the three men that they had carried out a truly terrifying crime in which the victims died in the most dreadful circumstances, saying, This was a fire started immediately outside a small terrace property and an occupied property in an enclosed area. It was a huge blaze of high intensity. It was a recipe for disaster. Many more could have died, and but for the actions of neighbours, more would have died. I am sure, on the jury's verdict and evidence in court, your intention was to kill. I am not sure on the evidence that you knew at the time that a baby was present in the flat. There was, however, undoubtedly real mental and physical suffering in the awful minutes before these young people and a baby died. These three tragic deaths have inevitably had the most profound consequences for the many who loved those who died. Addressing Peter Ayer, the judge told him, I am satisfied you were, as has been said already, the driver behind the events of that night, both literally and metaphorically. While this is reflected in the jury's guilty verdicts, it is nevertheless the case that you have repeatedly lied and tried to manipulate and bully your way out of your criminal responsibility, going so far as to seek to lay all the blame on your sons and your sons alone. It is difficult to understand how a parent could act in such a way. You were the father of your two young sons. You did nothing to stop them. I am quite satisfied you were the author of the venture and used them to satisfy your desire for vengeance and a sense of self-importance. Turning to Anthony Ayer, who as we'd said had admitted manslaughter before the trial, Mrs Justice Carr said, I am satisfied you were led by your father into the plan which was then executed. You had the opportunity not to engage or participate in the plan as you did. You, unlike them, chose to tell the truth as to your criminal involvement, at least in part. I am satisfied you have been significantly affected by the consequences of your actions. To Simon Eyre, who had denied involvement in the crimes, but who following the guilty verdict it was revealed had been convicted of arson for a fire involving a school minibus in 2008, the judge said. You too had the opportunity not to engage in or participate in the plan as you did. However, you were prepared to execute it. You were not forced to act as you did. Peter Ayer was given a minimum tariff of 32 years whilst Anthony and Simon Eyre were ordered to serve a minimum of 23 and 26 years respectively, minus the 231 days they had each already served on remand. The family members gave no reaction and said nothing as each of the sentences were handed down. Following the verdicts, the officer who'd led the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Kate Maynell of Derbyshire Police, said, this investigation has always been about getting justice for Amy, Ruby Grace, Edward and their families. What started as a dispute over a stolen moped very quickly escalated to the tragic events of that night in June. It was a foolish revenge attack gone terribly wrong. Nothing can bring Amy, Ed and Ruby Grace back 
but I hope these guilty verdicts will bring some sort of closure for their loved ones. Donna Parry Jones, the senior Crown Prosecutor at CPS East Midlands, added, The heirs set out to target Mr Gaunt, but it was Amy, Ruby Grace and Edward who died instead. This was a tragic, needless waste of three young lives. We cannot underestimate the devastation this has left on the families and friends of the three victims. On the steps outside Nottingham Crown Court, Carlene Gaunt, meanwhile, told the press of her disbelief that Peter, Simon and Anthony Eyre could be so cruel to target a flat with only one way in and one way out, adding, I'll now have to try and rebuild my life. Ruby was so lovely, I loved her to bits. I'll never forget Amy and Ruby, or Sean's best friend Ed. Sean is never going to forget Amy and Ruby or his friend Ed. I'll now try and support my son as much as possible. Melanie Hawkins, Amy's mother, added, We will never be able to forgive them for what they did. No verdict or sentence is going to make what happened that morning any easier for us to live with. We're the ones living the lifelong sentence without our beautiful girls, Amy and Ruby Grace. We love and miss you loads, girls. Now you can rest in peace. As we've said before countless times here on The Enthusiast, it's people like Carleen, Sean and Melanie that are equally left serving any sentence, isn't it? On the 28th of February 2017, Peter Allen Jeffrey Eyre and his sons Simon Lee Eyre and Anthony Paul Eyre were refused permission to appeal their conviction at London's Appeal Court after Lord Justice Simon, sitting with Mr Justice Holroyd and Mr Justice Sewell, ruled that, I quote, In our view, the judge was right to rule there was a case to answer. Counsel for the father and sons had argued that their convictions were unsafe and ought to be overturned, with grounds of appeal including that the trial judge should have ruled that there was no case to answer for murder, as the prosecution had not proved intent to kill. But Lord Justice Simon ruled that the judge's summing up of the case was indeed fair to all the appellants, and outright refused all three killers' permission to appeal. Now the previous November, Peter Eyre had had a further eight years added to his sentence to run concurrently after he had admitted inciting a child under 13 to engage in sexual activity. On the 7th of November 2016, Derby Crown Court had heard that when Eyre was on remand at HMP Birmingham for the triple murder ahead of his trial, he had made phone calls to an unnamed woman and a boy asking them to perform sex acts and to take photographs of the sordid activity to send to him. Prosecutor Vanessa Marshall said that it was clear from the phone call recordings that the woman and the boy were reluctant about what they were being asked to do and the mother of the boy had told police in a statement read to the court that since August 2016 her son had been unusually quiet and had become, I quote, more aggressive than ever. Judge Jonathan Bennett told Ayer, The phone calls were chilling to say the least. In the phone calls you had one driving aim, which was to satisfy your perverted sexual fantasies. You were manipulative. 
I cannot be satisfied so that I am sure that it actually took place, but that doesn't make a huge amount of difference. I have heard the impact on the boy. It's very difficult for me to make comment on that, but he is now a very disturbed and troubled young boy who did have problems before, but your actions have exacerbated that. Even if no such photographs ever materialised, of course, and it's unclear as to whether they did or not, the intention is still there, isn't it? Inflicting more misery, capable of more horror, even from behind bars. And this is whilst on remand for triple murder, one of the victims being a six-month-old child. Whilst his sons will be in their mid-forties when they are, Peter Ayer will be 77 years old before ever being considered for release. Let's hope that's a day that never comes. Fred Hayworth and the Ayer family. What on earth do you even begin to say about such monstrous crimes? To be so resentful and to blame anyone except yourself when the breakdown of a marriage is due to your own abusive behaviour but you're so bloody pig ignorant that you cannot accept that, you're so narcissistic that you can't even comprehend it's your own fault, and then so, to actually prepare a can of accelerant, and then cycle a mile and a half carrying it, hell-bent on destruction, and knowing that at the very least, the very least that would come from your actions, is devastation to the family and destruction of their home. To be willing to do that is incomprehensible enough, but to do it when you clearly know they are in there at the time? Monstrous. No other word will suffice there. It's pure evil. Perhaps alcohol played somewhat of a part in the crime, but that is the very, very least mitigation, and it excuses absolutely bugger all. Hayworth's life sentence there is totally, unquestionably deserved, and whilst I was unable to ascertain whilst researching if he is today a still serving prisoner or not, for round about now, any minimum tariff issued to him would likely be coming to the end, or if he is even alive, and beginning a life sentence at age 59, you kind of have to think, yeah, the jail devil has hopefully gripped you now, you fucking chai talk. Then if he is still incarcerated, well then I hope prison has been the hardest that it possibly can be for him. And I can't imagine an individual burning four children alive is going to be fighting mates off with the shitty stick either, can you? And the Ayer family. Well, I'm sure we've all had rows with people before. Maybe even stand-up public ones that get a bit heated. Hopefully not involving hammers and smash bottles, of course. But these things, more often than not, may end up in a lot of shouting, perhaps even with a couple of punches thrown, and then the matter is then settled, usually. But it goes to a different level when you follow someone home and deliberately set fire to a car and a block of flats, doesn't it? That is total blinkered hatred, that is. That's irrespective of and unconcerned with the other people who live in the same block, whose property or person may be harmed as a result of your actions, all over a bloody windscreen or a £50 moped at the end of the day. What an absolute tragic and horrific waste of so many lives. What we learned about Ayer Sr. and the further charges he faced after his life sentence for his paedophilic actions, whilst on remand, remember? Well, this is obviously a bit of a scumbag as it is, and fair to say without me sounding snobbish, for I might have the odd rogue or two in my own clan, that this had rubbed off on his children. A case of the apple 
not falling far from the tree. Each of them deserve the discomfort. Well, if you've got any shred of humanity in you, of course, each of them deserve the discomfort that must come with knowing that you're responsible for the deaths of three people, one of them a baby girl. Now, I couldn't live with myself knowing that, and I hope that that turmoil, if it does penetrate either of the three, then I hope that is a living hell for them each and every second of their sentences. I am in an especially venomous mood for this episode, if you couldn't tell. No, it's simply because each of the crimes I've just described are just so senseless and arson. It's just such a horrific act. Every time we've covered it here on the show, and we have several times over the years, be it Peter Dinsdale, Fias Munchie, Fielding, Victor Castigador, Frank McCann, the horror at the Mother Max pub, I'm sure I've maybe missed some there. Whatever, it horrifies me. I can't imagine the fear, pain and shock that must go through the minds of the victims. And to me, it just seems the epitome of agony, fear and cruelty. Monstrous actions, those described here having led to the deaths of seven people in total, and not a single one of them older than their teenage years. Tragic. What do you folks think? Well, you can share your thoughts with me in the thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group right now, or you can get in touch through any of the show's social media links. I'm always happy to shoot the breeze wherever. Now, I do apologise for the lateness of the episode this time around. It is later than I wished. Blame the fucking dentist and the cold from hell is all I can say. It has a knock-on and it's changed the layout of cases that I was covering. I mean... There are all sorts of mishmash, and the bonus tale has now become two bonus episodes this month. I know. But they're tale and they're tales that hook me. They might not be the most popular of tales with listeners because they are unsolved ones, but they're tales that hook me, so I hope that they hook you too. Now I know the cases we featured here today have been hellish tales as ever, but I hope anyway that they're both that you found both interesting and informative ones. I always love the feedback from you guys. It's how the show keeps going. With that, like milk that's been left out on the side for a day or two, I'm off, working on the next tale to come for my spare room. I thank you once again for joining me in the Mog, who, as I'm looking at him now, really couldn't be less arsed if he tried, believe me. And I thank you for your continued support. You all rule. All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, hopefully still will be Paul the true crime enthusiast wishing you guys all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon take it easy all stay safe and goodbye for now